Welcome to Edutechnicalities, a podcast dedicated to the trends and topics facing higher education. My name is Roland Moe, and I am your host for our special series on Emergent Scholarship. This seven-part series provides a deep analysis on the conceptualization, generation, and dispersal of knowledge and its relationship to the academy, be it the professoriate or the relationships between education and the community. Our hope is to highlight the progressive and congruent work happening in scholarship, as well as signpost opportunities to support this production and dissemination in traditional spaces such as academic disciplines, campus departments, and institutional promotion, tenure, and review. Our guest for this episode is Dr. Rajiv Janjiani, Special Advisor to the Provost on Open Education and a Psychology Instructor at Kwantlen Polytechnic University in British Columbia. He also serves as co-director of the Open Pedagogy Netbook, is an associate editor of Psychology Learning and Teaching, and an ambassador for the Center for Open Science. Rajiv and I discussed how open education can serve as an exemplar for emergent scholarship in form and administrative policy. Open education is a younger educational phenomena than emergent scholarship, yet open ed, open science, and OER have seen more success in adoption and advocacy than emergent scholarship. What lessons can the greater field of emergent scholarship learn from open education? And how can open education continue to grow upon its position of strength in today's educational discourse? So, successful doctor of psychology, psychology researcher. What moves you from a position in scholarship of publishing in high-tier journals, in collaborations, working on global projects, into OER? I think in, in one sense it wasn't much of a shift at all, to be honest. Because I think as a psychologist, I think I'm very lucky that so much of the learning sciences occurs within my discipline. So the whole notion of the scholarship of teaching and learning is really for many uh, academic psychologists the bread and butter of our work, to, to use these tools to investigate our practice. And then when I thought about OER, and, and not just OER, but open education more broadly as something that concerns teaching and learning, but wanting to approach it from a space of, of rigor and, and interrogation, it really wasn't much of a pivot at all. Uh, it was just a change of topic, but I had done that a lot in the past. I think the, the, the change for me, though, happens in a few other ways. So I do not anymore uh, you know, even seek to publish in top-tier journals in my discipline that are um, you know, uh, paywalled. Uh, I will publish open access now. So I can adjust in that sense. Or when I do publish, I will publish in a way that brings openness to a new audience. You know, psychology is such an interesting discipline, not just because of its grounding uh, or connection with the learning sciences, but there's been a lot of leadership within my discipline in a way that aligns with open education, even though they wouldn't call it that. So a few years ago, the president of the Association for Psychological Science, Mazreen Banaji, when she was president, she, called, she put out a call saying, look, we need to address Wikipedia. It's the widest used public resource. Our students use it. We use it. We are in the best place to fix it. So they launched the APS Wikipedia Psychology Initiative. Uh, you know, the, the same group funds resources for like gocognitive.net, which is to teach cognitive neuroscience, Creative Commons licensed simulations interviews, uh, teachpsychologicalscience.org, again, all CC licensed for teaching research methods and stats specific to psychology, there's a lot of this happening already. It's just nobody refers to it as open education. And I think one of my challenges perennially, I think, is when people, when I say open education, people are thinking, oh, he's talking about MOOCs and, and you know, Stanford and MIT and so on. So I think it's helping to, to raise awareness and clarify those misconceptions. 
but in terms of the nature of our work, a scholarship of teaching and learning, and the support that the discipline has put forward for open education, even though they don't realize it, it's not a pivot at all. So you mentioned earlier a difference of, of thought between the manner in which administrators and educational organizations scaffold what they think of as scholarship, but then in our actual practices, we do not provide the time mm -hmm. for scholarship of teaching and learning, scholarship of service. How does that play into your experience in OER? So you have moved from a faculty position to an administrative position around OER, but for many people who don't have that opportunity who are interested in this topic, without that link to scholarship, without that link to teaching and service, or without that link to service, it remains teaching, what, what are some ways that people could find themselves moving into OER, maybe not just adoption, but actual creation, uh, distribution, research? Yeah, it's such a big question. I, there's so many places to go with that. But I will say that I, I'm concerned at many levels as well that, that not enough people have these kinds of opportunities. I think it's possible to create them and use existing levers. For example, at uh, teaching intensive institutions like mine, there's six weeks a year, which is professional development, sort of accountable time. And people often use that to adapt, create, develop materials for their ne next teaching semester, or again, working with students or using internal grants. Certainly that's what I did when I first started. I applied for an internal research grant. And because my work aligned with sort of the vision of where the university wanted to go, they supported my research on the efficacy of OER, which is where I really began through time releases. And then opportunity, you know, creates another opportunity, of course. I think you're quite right. I think my, my hope with this position that they've created now, this administrative position to support open education, is that it really signals to other institutions that this is worthwhile investing in. This is something that pays dividends uh, for, for dozens and dozens of faculty, of course, but thousands of students ultimately. And it comes back to the institution tangibly. But I'm concerned, I, I should also add, uh, that too few people have these kinds of opportunities at this point because it still creates this additional problem where we're replicating the amount of privilege in the available OER itself. So you, uh, we, we had a discussion earlier about even things like Flickr, for example, and openly licensed public domain images on Pixabay and other things like that. Why are those images, why are those, uh, those stock images not especially diverse? Is it perhaps that the people who are privileged, who are being able to sort of upload their images without compensation, let's say, are the people who don't need that compensation? And if that's what's happening with images, is this happening with the ideology that's reflected in, let's say, a political science textbook that's openly licensed? At many levels, I think this is a problem. I think there are real tangible ways in which we can take existing levers and really use them to do this work. It no longer uh, needs to be one person or a team of people doing an entire project. So I think collaborative projects, uh, connecting people within the same discipline across institutions, uh, using internal funds, matching those, uh, using professional development time, these are all basic things. And then, of course, grants and external things you can apply for. But I think it's critical that as we look to support people entering this space to do the kinds of work you're talking about with the best of intentions that we're not replicating the power structures. It's worthwhile it's just maybe adding another point to this same answer as well. So there's a good example in our backyard over here of UBC mm -hmm. uh, sort of changing some of its structure to accommodate this as well. So I'm a faculty member and the open movement, whether that's OER, open education, open pedagogy, something is inspiring me to give it a look and I don't have a lot of time. 
So this is, it's, it's hit me, and I need a success, or I'm probably going to go back to doing things the way that I normally did. What, what does that look like? How can I be, what is the way that you see tangibly that faculty or administrators or people who are more, uh, more willing to think about open education, that they can have that immediate success? Some practical suggestions for any person who wants to join the movement. Yeah, well, I think there's so much that's inspiring when you learn about things. And you know, I want to do this with my students. And I want to do that. I would say, you know, if you're new, start easy. Start small. Pick a course. Pick one course. And perhaps even don't, you don't even need to think about doing something like adapting an open textbook to be able to displace a commercial textbook. I think in all likelihood, I would begin by identifying the things that a faculty member is already doing that are in fact open education or an open educational practice, but they're not labeling as such. I mean, perhaps they're already, for example, um, uh, assigning um, uh, TED Talks to their students. I mean, that's a silly, simple example because I can't stand TED Talks in sort of bite-sized, glib solutions to complex problems. But nonetheless, it, to the extent that those are being used in the classroom, Talking about, isn't it wonderful how you don't have to install some sketchy plugin in your Chrome browser to download it in case the link goes dead? You can download this. You can archive this. Why are there captions available? This is neat, right? It makes your life easier. Um, what are you doing with your students in the classroom right now? Uh, if your students think, for example, that writing another essay uh, is sort of busy work and it's grunt work for you, uh, it's not inspirational to, to expend the amount of energy you are to even grade that, can we, in fact, tweak an aspect of your assessment practice that is open pedagogy, that, in fact, reduces your labor and increases excitement and motivation on the part of students, that invigorates your pedagogy, but that takes less of your time? Um, and I would pick something, you know, examples of well-trodden paths. Uh, you can look at things like uh, the resources from the Wiki Education Foundation uh, with the rubrics and case studies, and thousands of instructors have already done that or maybe having your students write uh, brief five to 700-word op-ed pieces and submitting those for publication. This is less work, but it's more exciting work. So I think uh, in a way that whatever the faculty member feels, this is something that's exciting. This is something I want to do. So for me, it's critical that the beginning of the conversation about open education is not one that's driven by judgment oh, I don't care enough about my students, is that the implication that I'm assigning an expensive commercial textbook? That's not the starting point. It's not judgment-driven, it's not guilt-driven, it is aspirational. And that's why it's something you want to move towards, not that you're moving away from something. So capture their attention, they'll find it themselves. Expose them to examples of practice of their colleagues in their discipline who are practicing open pedagogy. That'll excite them. And then for me, if the least significant benefit of open education is significant cost savings for students, that's a great place to be. Let's talk about textbooks. A lot of the discussion of open education and OER is around affordable textbooks. Sure. The last two years, there's been significant media focus on the savings that can happen, and uh, within the field as well, a great celebration of, yeah. of this space. Obviously, this is a wild success for for students and for OER. So um, it's getting there. Yeah. If you could synthesize a little bit of what has happened in that time in the textbook market that has made OER such an attractive opportunity, well, I think there's been a lot of factors. Uh, so I think one is certainly awareness has has been raised dramatically. A lot more people are aware of a the problem of unaffordable, expensive commercial textbooks. 
And that's critical because with the principal agent problem, we're assigning the textbooks without actually being aware of the cost because we don't have to pay that cost. And B, uh, also awareness of the availability of high quality relevant OER. So, you know, groups like BC Campus, the Open Textbook Network, and others, I think have done a terrific job of taking away the problem of discoverability, of, of the quality filter. Because now you go to one place, you've got hundreds of open textbooks that have, you know, transparent and open uh, reviews from faculty with their names, with institutional affiliations uh, in a variety of formats. So the awareness problem has, has diminished. Uh, the discoverability problem has largely been tackled, and it's improving even further with sort of public domain uh, mark records being able to Im be imported into library catalogs and the rest. It's still an issue. There's still a lot more ground uh, that needs to be covered. I think one thing that's influenced all of this is the commercial publishers themselves. Uh, Cengage, for example, what was it, a year ago, released a research report themselves where they were forecasting that over the next three years, um, uh, over the next few years, uh, OER adoption as a primary required course resource is going to triple. That's their prediction, and they're among the most conservative pr uh, predictors. All of this is fantastic, but challenges still remain. Uh, commercial publishers have moved. Early on, they were criticizing sowing seeds of doubt about OER, right? sort of whispering uh, you know, into people's ears. Oh, you know, if it's available for free, how good could it be? Was the sort of uh, uh, implied, you know, the insinuation anyway. And then, of course, people quickly realize this is just a silly uh, straw man. You know, what is free to use is not free to produce. And then there's peer reviews, and then there's efficacy studies, and all the rest of this. So now they've moved, where instead of sort of deriding OER or sowing seeds of doubt about the quality of OER, they're actively co-opting OER. So they're building platforms, and as they pivot from uh, you know, print textbooks themselves to digital platforms, from, from uh, resources to services effectively, uh, they are saying, well, of course, and you can access OER within our platforms as well. A brochure from Pearson is a great example where they're talking about the problem of students not uh, accessing textbooks. And all of the research they cite at the bottom of that brochure is open textbook efficacy research. Um, so they're co-opting the message now. So you know, if you can't beat them, you co-opt them. So at this point, uh, we don't have the same kind of um, opposition from commercial publishers. I think to some degree they have a love-hate relationship with OER where we are probably helping accelerate uh, the shift to digital on the part of faculty and students. So I think that's been another thing that's influenced uh, the space. Uh, and of course, the increasing availability of resources for a larger uh, variety of disciplines. But I think all of this is still, you're right, it's still focused on, 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 on textbooks and what many within the field regard as the sort of lowest common denominator within, within open education. I'm a faculty member who is within the policies and procedures of an institution. So in my service tenure scholarship, uh, service teaching scholarship paradigm, I have an understanding of where scholarship fits in that space, what scholarship entails. Moreover, in the digital age, a lot of my experience with open is from what we have called open washing, or the idea of co-optation to get onto the movement where it, it wears the trimmings but does not, in fact, engage the power or the, or the procedures. So I think of the emails that I'm sure you get, that many faculty get for publishing in open journals. Mm -hmm. You know, you can hear publish in this open journal for $400. And right. you will have, you will be chosen within, you know, within 48 hours, we'll have your manuscript back to you. That that space, plus, as you mentioned, the 
fear with which publishers entered the conversation saying, how are you going to be able to, to ensure the rigor of this? I think back to the earlier days of Wikipedia and faculty members, uh, whether it was primary school, secondary school, higher education, saying this is not a valuable resource. Anybody mm-hmm. could go out there and write it. Mm-hmm. And today, we understand if, if anybody can write it, it means anybody can edit it. Mm-hmm. And we can have a community around this one resource instead of uh, reviewer one and reviewer two. For structures that are very archaic and still think that the manner in which we address scholarship and we recognize scholarship follows a, a very specific path, how do we address that? How do we start to work to change those cultures? You hit on a lot in that, but I love that when you started, you had a bit of a Freudian slip over there when you talked about teaching, research, and service. Instead yes. of teaching, you said tenure, yeah. which is, of mm-hmm. course, <laughs> the, the sort of elephant in the room over there. So uh, you look at a place like the University of British Columbia. That's the big sort of R1 research institution in in this province. Uh, And that's a space where they're not interested in in copying what other people are doing. Certainly, uh, they've invested in in MOOCs, uh, sort of big brand projects, all of this stuff. But then their math department, their physics department, really invested in OER, not just in terms of adopting open textbooks, but developing resources to suit their, their context. Of course, they got quite a reaction, right? There's a physics faculty member I know who walked into his class at the beginning of the year. 400 students in this lecture theater stood up and gave him a standing ovation because of the cost savings. That's when he realized, oh, this is maybe important, actually. But that's not why the department embraced it. They embraced it for the sort of fit for their teaching, for what they could do, and of course, what they could provide in the way of expertise. As the math department, physics department, and lots of other people at UBC really started taking this on, then the students started speaking up. And about a year ago, the Senate at UBC passed, uh, approved a change in policy. So when it comes to their tenure and promotion policy, particularly for the the teaching stream, there's now uh, the creation and adaptation of OER is recognized for tenure and promotion at UBC. And that's an institution with probably the most layers of bureaucracy and the most sort of harking back to older traditions versus an institution like mine that's smaller, much younger, and nimbler in the way of uh, pedagogy and pedagogical innovation. And they've managed to change this grand old process. I I have quite a lot of hope. I don't think UBC is going to be the last one to do this. Uh, I think different places, uh, institutions come to open for different things. Uh, But then the challenge, of course, is not just paying lip service to questions of innovation, but actually uh, structuring the institution and people's workplaces so that they can actually do it. I mean, you'll always have the people who are at the leading edge of the pencil. They'll innovate not just without support, but sometimes despite active opposition. And you'll have people who will follow them, who will see the proof of concept and realize this is actually great and, and I can follow this lead. But most people are in the middle, the wood of the pencil. right? The, they would do it if it was easy and set up and they didn't have to do extra work and they had the time. And yes, you have the erasers at the end, but you're always going to have the erasers at the end. And for me, the beauty of open education is not just that it's about access, it's e- equal parts about agency. And so for faculty, I absolutely would never in my life uh, want a faculty to, to adopt a resource that they don't want to adopt. It's their choice. They're the expert. They make the call. I just want them to know about the availability of the option that they didn't know about before. Uh, and then they make the choice. So I want it to be an informed choice, effectively. But cycling back to, to you know your question about open washing, open wrapping, uh, it's getting really rather interesting and diverse as the commercial publishers innovate. But you're really talking about two things, I feel. You're talking about open educational resources on the one hand, but also open access publishing on the other. 
And they're related, of course, right? Because they share, I think, a similar moral foundation. Uh, they're both uh, really challenged uh, by uh, the inertia of normative practice. They're both challenged by uh, sort of uh, monopolies or, or, you know, few very large publishers who effectively have monopolies that institutions can't move away from because the faculty are essentially addicted to those resources. In the case of commercial textbook authors, there's prestige, there's some remuneration, but it's more prestige that's associated with publishing. They want to serve the discipline, they want to serve their students. Very few commercial textbook authors get rich off this, although a few do, certainly. Uh, but the same thing with publishing. We routinely sign away uh, the copyright of our own intellectual work to commercial publishers for no particular reason. Uh, right, publicly funded research, so then our institutions themselves have to pay money to subscribe to databases so my colleague next door can read my research. They share a moral foundation, they share this sort of strangeness of normative practice, but they are quite different. I think there are uh, you know, real open access journals that are real open access, that are not, uh, not sort of ransom access, that are not demanding uh, you know, high article processing fees, that certainly are not uh, vanity journals or predatory journals. I wouldn't even refer to those as open access journals. That's just the sort of rubbish on the internet that is part of the rubbish on the internet, but that are really wonderful open access journals. And I think as people realize, uh, not just in terms of, of uh, rigor being the same, editorial boards of, let's say, the International Journal of Wellbeing would be a really good example in my field of a really high quality open access journal that is really open access with a wonderful editorial board, same level of rigor, Right? But the difference is everyone can access it. So now uh, it's not that uh, you have the privilege, that the privileged have access to the, the latest cutting edge research, even in terms of applying it to their context. No, everyone has access to it immediately. From an R1 institution's point of view, if you want to look at impact, what greater impact than having more people read your work? But somehow, of course, we have this warped mentality that if we uh, you know, publish in the least accessible channels and write in the least accessible style, somehow that's prestigious. But I think that definition is changing. And I think as academics, as we start to realize the value of not just uh, you know, speaking to our colleagues at professional conferences that each of us has spent $2,000 to attend, but that we also communicate to the public, that we do both of these jobs, uh, that impact is measured not just in terms of how few people can access your work, but how many. If I'm associate dean or associate vice president and I am working with scholarship, tenure, promotion, review, if I'm working with a tier one journal or a traditional publisher, that name comes with an idea of gravitas. I understand that that publisher has a history of peer review. How do I ensure that with the numerous places for publication within the open education world? I think one is you can look at journals that a lot of us publish in, in open ed, uh, look at uh, the International Review of Research on Open and Distributed Learning, erodal, very high impact factor, for example, look at the people on the editorial board, all of that helps. But I would say even if you want to publish in what would be a more traditional journal for you, let's say even in your specific discipline and not in open education, which has so many open journals, that's fine. You can still be an open practitioner. So in Canada, uh, the Tri-Council, which is our federal granting agencies, have now mandated that any research that's, that's publicly supported has to be in an open repository uh, uh, at least after 12 months. It doesn't even have to be the postprint. It could be a preprint. These are important signals from funders, from government, of the importance of access and widening that access. 
So if you want to stay with a, a traditional journal that is never going to sniff uh, in the direction of open access, fine. Uh, do that if you, if you must. Uh, I think you recognize that this is a game you're playing. And, and I do think it is down to the people who are more senior figures in the field, who are post-tenure, uh, to sort of change the structure. It is very difficult for early career scholars to challenge uh, those kinds of existing norms. So I think for post-tenure people, you have an opportunity to shape the narrative, the discussion within your discipline. Even for early career folk, put your preprint in an open repository, make it accessible, right? You'll realize how many people are reading your work because now they can access the full PDF when they find your, your article in Google Scholar and not just a, a brief citation with the American Psychological Association. So you realize that. The discipline will realize that. It doesn't have to be a wholesale shift. It doesn't have to be a radical shift. There are easy ways to move in the direction of openness without compromising any of your ideals. And so at this point, it's really about raising awareness and sort of shedding a light on the many ways in which people can practice in this space. I think ultimately the goals of openness, whether it's open access publishing, open education, or frankly open science, are the same. Right? It is about access. It is about supporting collaboration, transparency, and rigor. It's very difficult uh, when thousands of people can see your work that has been peer-reviewed, yes, through a proper editorial board, to hide, to get away with something. Openness exposes flaws. I can't engage in questionable research practices like p-hacking or withholding disconfirming data or hypothesizing after the results are known if I have pre-registered my hypothesis, if I've put my data in an open repository, right? if I've shared my research materials, because then I'm supporting uh, reproducibility within my discipline. So I guess what I'm trying to say is the goals are the same, but openness is a bit of an accelerant over here. And so that's why open science is better science. Open education is frightening to many people because I don't like it necessarily when my colleague pops in for a peer review of my teaching. I don't think that particular lecture, which I know about in advance, is representative of every other lecture I will give that semester because I know what's on the line with that site visit. But why, right? Is it because I'm afraid of being found out? Is it because I'm afraid my secret source will be stolen somehow? Like there's all sorts of fears, legitimate fears that faculty sometimes have and you know, illegitimate fears that faculty sometimes have. But I think if we reflect on what is the goal of scholarship, what is the goal of science, what is the goal of education, we will realize that openness supports those goals. And the barriers are the structural barriers that constrain you into normative practice. And so I think once that realization hits, the red pill has already been taken. Rajiv, thank you so much for joining us today. You can follow Rajiv on Twitter at ThatPsychProf and on the web at ThatPsychProf.com. His most recent edited compilation from Ubiquity Press, Open, The Philosophy and Practices That Are Revolutionizing Education and Science, is available for free download in digital formats under a CCBY license and for purchase from Amazon and Book Depository in print. And we thank you for listening to this episode of Edutechnicalities. Our bumper music, no, I Can't Be Happy Here is courtesy of Austin Myers, who you can find at ak5a.bandcamp.com. Special thanks to our sponsor for this series, the Center for Faculty Scholarship and Development at Seattle Pacific University. And a special thanks to Rebecca Moe for serving as producer of this episode. Please join us again for the other episodes in our special series on rethinking scholarship in the 21st century, as well as the other special topics that make Edutechnicalities the unique experiment in audio production that it is. My name is Roland Moe. We look forward to having you again. Goodbye.